Revelation 13. Good morning, church. Good to to see you uh, this morning. Uh, Thanks for being here. And I just want to say, too, it was announced off the top, but uh, our prayer time tonight, we would really, really love to have you here. Uh, This is uh, going to be a a wonderful hour together as we uh, intercede and and pray with one another. The format's super simple. There's a couple songs and then a prayer element and songs and a prayer element. It's a whole night of that. And um, we don't compel anybody to pray. If you say, like, I've never been anything like that before, I'm not sure about it, I don't like to pray publicly or in a group, and, and that's fine. Just come and listen to other prayers and add your heart prayer to those uh, prayers that are being spoken. No one's compelling anyone to do anything publicly or in a group. And so if you want to be here 6.30 tonight, it's going to be a very special time uh, together as we uh, go before the Lord in that way. All right, Revelation uh, 13 um, if you have uh, ever been involved uh, in campus ministry of any kind, uh, specifically uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, they published a booklet, um, now called Crew, by the way, they published a booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. Uh, they published this booklet back in 1952, and from that time till today, uh, 2.5 uh, billion with a B uh, of these booklets have been uh, printed. And that doesn't take into consideration the number of downloads or a number of times that this booklet has been accessed on a website since, since the internet's been around. It's such a simple and effective explanation of, of the gospel. And in fact, we put a link to it in the sermon notes today so you can uh, read it in its entirety. Um, and again, used on college campuses and, and well beyond that. Here's law number four as it explains the gospel to someone who doesn't know Christ. Law number four says we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. And when that was explained out in in the booklet, when it's explained out in the booklet, it's, it's explained in terms of turning to God from self. Turning to God from self, and it uses an illustration of two thrones. And, and it depicts the self-directed life before Christ, and it depicts the Christ-directed life. And so with this throne and the self-directed life, I'm on the throne, Christ is off the throne, and all the various aspects of my life, greater and lesser priorities, are just kind of a, a jumbled mess around me. But in the Christ-directed life, where I take myself off the throne, I put Christ on the throne, it now orders all these aspects of my life, not saying that it removes things, not saying that it takes trials away or that my life is, is made perfect in, in that way, but just that they're ordered, that I have perspective, that I see God at work in my life in this Christ-directed life. It really comes down to whether you're on the throne or whether Christ is. Now, that booklet came to mind because I remember receiving that as a teenager um, and, and reading it and talking to others about it, but that came to mind as I was studying through Revelation 13 because Revelation 13 is about sovereignty. It's about who your king is. It's about who you worship, what you believe, and what your hope is in. In other words, it's about who's on the throne of your heart. And if it's anyone other than Jesus, any, anything or anyone other than Jesus, who is, as the chapter will tell us today, the lamb who was slain, 
if it's anything or anyone other than Jesus, then I'm going to tell you right now, I have nothing but bad news for you today in the passage. But if Christ is on the throne of your heart, if he is your king, if he is sovereign over your life, then I have nothing but good news for you today. And that's what we're going to see in the passage. So I want to read Revelation 13, 18 uh, verses here. You follow along uh, in your Bible. This is the Apostle John seeing these visions, of course. He says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, it, opens it, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it, it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth its and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, here it is in our notes. Ready for this? Let's go. I must acknowledge God's sovereignty over all. That is the theme of this 
chapter. And some warnings come at us right away. Three critical warnings. The first one is this, lest I worship falsely. Now, while the beast will rise in a, in a political fashion, you read this and you realize there's a lot of politics going on here, a lot of, of, of power being uh, coming into play here. The beast will rise in political fashion, but his interest is not in earthly rule, but in stealing the hearts of humanity and in, in drawing their devotion away from God and toward him. Politics for Satan is a means to an end. Because he already knows he's not going to reign on earth. He already knows he's defeated. But he exercises all of this. He exercises economic power and political power. And we're going to see religious power that he exercises over the, over the people. And he does this while he can so that he might draw away as many people as possible before the real king comes. When the king comes and establishes his throne on earth and reigns for all eternity, Satan just wants to take out as many people as he can before his time is done. And so verse 1, I saw a beast, is what John said. He says, I saw a beast. Now this is the Antichrist. We have various terms for uh, this person, this Antichrist. Uh, the beast here in Revelation, John in his first letter and second letter refers to this person as uh, the Antichrist. It's the man of lawlessness uh, to Paul in 2 Thessalonians. In, in uh, the book of Daniel and in the book of uh, Mark, Jesus is speaking and, he, and he's called uh, the abomination of desolation. All of these referring to the same uh, person. And... Um, the first century readers would have been looking at this and there's a calculation they could do on 666 and, and they would calculate it out and they saw as they read this, they were thinking in their minds, Nero. I mean, if you know anything about the history of the Roman emperors, they were looking at this and they were going, that is Nero to a T. So that's what was in their mind. It's not limited to that interp interpretation, but they saw it that way. And in fact, many have had from the time of Nero and all the way through, we can think through 20th century history alone, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, and other dictators. And we could say all of them had the spirit of Antichrist. All of them had the spirit of the man of lawlessness in them. All of them were reflective of the beast that we see described here. And so John says, I saw this beast rising out of the sea. Now, we haven't looked at a lot of the symbolism in Revelation, but this is one that I think we should just stop on for a minute and say, why the sea? Why is the beast coming out of the sea? Well, Ladd notes that the sea is a symbol of the agitated surface. No one writes like this anymore, okay? the agitated surface of unregenerate humanity, which is likened to a seething cauldron of confused national and social life out of which great historical movements arise. Now, that, I read that and I just go, first of all, that's awesome. That's an awesome quote, first of all. But second of all, I just go like, that's today. That describes where we live today. Just, those, just these words, confused, Confused national and social life. Isn't that today? We're so confused today. 
And out of this confusion that we feel in the world, don't we all feel that we're also on the precipice of some great movement, some great upheaval of history that's about to happen? And that's the point that Lad is making. In fact, this understanding of the sea uh, comes right out of uh, the prophet Isaiah. The wicked are like the tossing sea for it, cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. I mean, that's the, we live in the world of mire and dirt. We're going to leave here, and we're going to get into our lives, and Monday, you're going to go back into your workplaces, and back into your schools, and back into your life, and it's really going to be another six or seven days of mire and dirt being thrown at you as a Christian. You navigating through all of that. And isn't it true that it's like when we come together like this as God's people, that this is like us, we're just having a shower. We're just cleaning all the mire and dirt off again. Getting ourselves ready to go back into it again. We need this. That's the world we live in. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army in the latter part of the 1800s, he had this incredible vision that helped to, to, to establish the, the mission that the Salvation Army was on. William Booth re- recorded this, and this is only a portion of the greater vision, and just uh, forgive me for this being a little bit of an extended quote. Booth said, I was led into a train of thought concerning the condition of the multitudes around me. They were living carelessly in the most open and shameless rebellion against God without a thought for their eternal welfare. I seemed to see them all, millions of people all around me, given up to their drink and their pleasure, their dancing and their music, their business and their anxieties, their politics and their troubles, ignorant, willfully ignorant in many cases. And in other instances, knowing all about the truth and not caring at all. But all of them, the whole mass of them, sweeping on and up in their blasphemies and devilries to the throne of God, I saw a dark and stormy ocean, and over it the black clouds hung heavily. Through them every now and then vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled while the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. As they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again. And then some sank to rise no more. The waters that John saw, he would record later in Revelation. He would be told that the waters that you saw, John, the sea that you saw, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages all those who chose to worship falsely, all those who chose to worship the powerful beast that's described here. A beast so powerful, so awesome in its description in 
in verses uh, 2 and 3, we see this description of this beast. And if, if, you're a, if you've read Daniel, you'll know that the beast sounds so similar. In fact, in Daniel, you have four beasts that are described. And here in Revelation, it's as if all four beasts have combined, been combined into one. One of its heads, verse 3, and, and this is shocking to us as Christians, but this beast can now replicate resurrection. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Now, what you have to understand about what's happening here in chapter 13, and in fact, throughout Revelation, is that Satan has no new tricks. He has no original ideas. And so Satan's whole plan is to parody the things that God has done to create confusion. He's not coming up with his own plan. He's looking at what God did, and he's saying, you know what? We're going to replicate that. And that's going to mess with people. And so we have a parody here. We have a parody of the death and resurrection of Christ that this beast now goes through themselves. A mortal wound to the head, it would seem, and resurrection. People are seeing it as a resurrection. In fact, all of this is built, and we'll see this again later in the book, but all of this is built, in fact, on a, on a parody of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity of God. We have the devil, the dragon, we have the beast, which is a stand-in for Christ, the Antichrist. And of course, we have the false prophet that we'll see who is a stand-in for the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dragon, beast, and false prophet, the unholy trinity, a parody of what God is or who God is meant to deceive the masses. So one of its heads seemed to have had a mortal wound. It's died, but the mortal wound was healed. And, and notice, deceiving the whole earth, because now the people are looking at this, and they're marveling. Look at this. The beast was wounded, and now it's come back to life. Verse 3 says, they followed the beast, pledging devotion. Verse 4, as they worshipped the dragon. Because it's the dragon who had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, it says. Saying, and these are, the, these are words that ought to be reserved for God. So now the parody is not only, we're, we're, we're a parody of the Trinity and a, and a parody of the death and resurrection of Christ, but now a parody of worship. They worship the beast saying, words reserved for God alone. Who is like the beast? Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Well, first of all, Michael can fight against it. We saw that in the last chapter, Revelation 12, 7, Michael and his angels come against the beast. God doesn't even need to fight him directly because Michael's going to be able to take care of it. But here we have this question, this rhetorical question, who is like the beast? Again, for the first century reader, they would have been hearing this going, that's exactly the thing we hear in the temples around our cities. Remember those seven letters written to those seven cities? And in fact, the book of Revelation was sent out first to these seven cities in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And in many of those cities, they had temples 
And this was a particular part of the Roman Empire that did this. Not every part of the Roman Empire did this, but in Asia, they were super interested in setting up temples to worship the emperors, probably to curry favor with Rome. They would set up a temple. They would declare the emperor to be a god, and they would worship the the emperor in that temple. They were deifying their emperors. And they would say, who is like the emperor? Who is like Domitian? No, those words have to be reserved for Yahweh, for the Lord God. Psalm 113.5 is a sample of many Old Testament verses that ask this question, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? And the answer every time is no one. There's no one like our God. And the thing is that this isn't just about the first century readers and it isn't just about us waiting for this, these end times events to roll out, but it is about us living our lives right now and the world today offers us its counterfeit gods. Manifestations, if you will, of the beast or the spirit of antichrist. Three primary ones. Temples that you and I are tempted to visit every week. The God of pleasure, the God of possessions, and the God of power. And you will live for Christ, and you will have Him on the throne of your life, or you will live for these things. You will live for pleasure, you will live for possessions, and you will live for power. And really, we think that in doing so, we're on the throne. But the reality is we are not. The reality is that you have been duped if that is your situation. You have been deceived because you are not on the throne at all. The beast is. The dragon is. And you have pledged your devotion and your worship to him. And that happens because, notice this next, here's the second warning, because you believe erroneously. Worship flows from belief. And many are believing wrong things. Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty, okay, prideful, self-glorifying words, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Word blasphemy means to injure, to harm someone's reputation by what is said. And in this case, it isn't so much that negative things, that, bla- that the blasphemies towards God are negative things about God, but what they're saying, really, the blasphemy is what they're saying about themselves, putting themselves in the place of God. And so now it's not the deification of a, of a, of a Caesar, now it's the deification of self. I'm the God here. And that takes us all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Genesis 3, 5, when the serpent is talking to Eve and says, you shall be like God. This is the battle. Who's on the throne? Back to the question. Who is on the throne of your heart? 
Will you believe right things about God? Things that he has said about himself. So not things that other people are saying about him. Not, not things that the world is saying about him. Not things that your own heart is saying about him. Not things that you have invented in your own mind about God. So much of that today, well, God to me is. But what God has said about himself. Verse 5 continues. And it, this beast, was allowed by God. Notice, allowed by God. Make no mistake that God is sovereign throughout all of this. He is the implied actor. Whenever you see something happen, you're going, I wonder where that came from. God allowed it. God ordained it. So it was allowed by God, the beast was allowed by God to exercise authority for 42 months. We've talked about that time frame many times already. This is this short period of time of, of, of great tribulation that will come on the world. Verse six, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. And by speaking about his dwelling, it's talking about all those who dwell in heaven. So that would be all the believers from all time in history, plus all of the holy angels are the, those who dwell in heaven. Those are being blasphemed against. And so Satan has this, the beast and the dragon have this no holds bar, take no, take no prisoners, scorched earth policy with respect to God and all those who love and serve him. Verse seven, the beast was also allowed by God to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, not conquer them in the sense that they're going to give up on God, not, not conquer them in the sense that they're now going to apostatize and deny God and become a follower of the dragon, not, not conquer in that way, but in the sense they will be conquered in the sense that they will be viciously persecuted and die martyrs' deaths. And God's going to allow that. So the physical part of who they are, not their spirits, but the physical part of the, who they are will be conquered. And, and the irony in all of this is that in, in martyring them, what the dragon is really doing, what the beast really does, is he hands them their greatest victory. You martyr a Christian, that's like primo level one. I mean, you're at the top of your game if you get to give your life for Jesus. We don't think about it that way. You know, we might pray these prayers where we go like, you know, Jesus, help me to be a better Christian. I don't know if we pray it that way, but you know, we're praying like, help me to live more holy. Help me to live this kind of life for you. Help me to witness to this person or to whatever. We pray these prayers because we want to be better Christians. How many of you in the last month or in your entire life says, Jesus, I want the optimum. I want to die for you like physically die, not this spiritual death thing where I, but I want to die for you. Because if we were like super serious about like our Christian life, realizing this is the pinnacle that you would be a martyr for Jesus. We don't pray that way. But that's exactly what the beast hands them. He gives them their greatest victory. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. That's language that's familiar to us because every worship scene we've seen in Revelation, okay, we've seen this worship scene. 
Really, it pictures the, the, the global nature of all of this. And in this case, this is a global event affecting all people. Verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, will worship it. And we're going to see an exception to that in a few moments, so just hang on to that thought. But for now, we want to see that what we believe really matters. Because many people in the world today, people that you know just believe erroneously. They just believe wrong things. Jesus said, like at the end of the age, and in Matthew 24, it's another apocalyptic passage, and Jesus is speaking, and he's teaching his followers, and he says, many will come in my name. Speaking of the end times, many will come in my name. By the way, we're in the end times now. The end times started when, when Jesus was ascended. All of this is the last days. So many will come in my name, Jesus says, saying, I am the Christ. I'm the Savior. I have a different way of salvation. You just need to follow what I say. And they will lead many astray because people are looking for this stuff. And then he says, many false prophets will arise. So not personally claiming to be the Savior, to the Christ, but many false prophets or preachers will come. Prophets, preachers say, many false prophets prophets will, will arise and lead many astray. And I just want to tell you, like, I mean, there, there's so many preachers available to us now. You can listen to almost any preacher you want, any time of the day or night. You can go on the internet. You can listen to all kinds of preachers. And many of you are through social media, through YouTube, whatever it is, you're listening to all these different preachers. And, and I'm just going to say to you, most of them shouldn't be listened to. Because they're not preaching the word of God. Be very discerning and very careful about who you listen to online. Not every person who puts themselves forward as a preacher of God is genuinely a preacher of God. Jesus told us there's going to be all kinds of preachers out there and they're leading you astray. Be discerning, be careful about who you listen to along the way. And so we want to, um, I would just say here, the, the thing for us, and we want you to take everything you ever hear here and compare it to the word of God, but our priority is in our four pillars, and the first of our four pillars is that we proclaim the authority of God's word without apology. Now, notice where the authority is. We proclaim the authority of God's word. It's not that we proclaim God's word authoritatively. The authority isn't in us. We proclaim the authority of God's word. The authority is not in the preacher. The authority is not in the pastoral team. The authority is not in our elders. The authority is not in tradition. We've always done it that way. It's not in our history. The authority is always and only rooted in the word of God, the inspired word of God. There's no authority in humanity or in Satan that does not first come from God. And so it just makes sense for us to always go back to the source, amen? Always going back to the source, which is the word of God. And if we do that, we will not be deceived. Everybody still with me? Okay, just a light, easy message today. So just kind of working through a few points here. I must acknowledge God's sovereignty overall, lest I worship falsely, believe erroneously. Here's a third one, and hope vainly. It really always just comes down to this. 
You know, every single human being needs hope to survive. Like every human being who's living today on planet Earth is living because they have some hope inside of them. If you don't, if you don't have hope, what happens if you lose all hope, you fall into despair, and despair, unchecked, always leads to death, always. So hope is like, is, is, is really oxygen for the soul. Without it, you die. So everybody, everybody has hope. I'm not saying that everybody has Christian hope. I'm not saying everybody has hope in, 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 in Jesus Christ. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they have hope in something in order to survive. People find it in a lot of different ways. People find hope in their work or an achievement. Like if I can produce something and that gives me a sense that I'm contributing to society and, and I have a sense of purpose in my life and so I have some hope. People find it very commonly in friends, in their relationships, and in family, in marriage, and children, and grandchildren. They find it in leaving a legacy. You know what? I just want to contribute in such a way that I can leave a legacy for the next generations to follow. And they find hope in that. They find hope in serving others. They find hope in education. If only we could be uh, more educated about these things, inform ourselves about these things. They find hope in charitable efforts. They find hope in a cause. You know, I've taken up this cause. This gives me hope that we can bring change. People find it in that. People find it in, in, I just put down this. They find it in the fight, in persevering through a thing. So you look at people who, who go through uh, cancer treatments and, and battle back against the disease. And in the fight, they find hope and then they ring the bell and they come home. And we're all inspired by that and we find some hope in, in the fact that they found some healing. They found uh, more years on planet Earth. People find hope in inspirational words and stories. They find hope in, I don't understand this one, but they find hope in humanity. <laughs> Go figure. You could laugh louder than that. I mean, a little bit more. Thank you. They find hope. A lot of people find hope in religion, not necessarily Christianity, just a lot of religion. People find hope in it. Now, hope, this John Piper gave a great definition of hope. And, um, and this is a general definition of hope. It's not necessarily Christian hope that he's talking about, just hope in general. Hope is a confident expectation and desire for good things in the future. And again, you can build that off of any of these things that I've just listed here. But the problem with all of those sources of hope that I just mentioned is that every single one of them has an expiry date attached to it. It only goes so far. None of those things that I mentioned are eternal. They can get you through a, 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 a day. They could get you through a tough week or a month. They could, they could get you through a few years. And, and if you cobble it together correctly, enough of this and that, you could cobble, enough, uh, uh, cobble together enough hope to last an entire lifetime. Well, then that's it. It's not news to anybody here. You're all going to die. And the hope runs out. And so what we want to look at at and look for is an eternity that lasts. We want our hope to be something that transcends this life, transcends the temporal life, and takes us on into eternity. And so John, notice this, verse 11, John saw a second beast, because apparently the first beast was not enough. We need another one of those. Two beasts is better than one. That's the motto of Satan, I guess. We saw a second beast. The first one rose out of the sea. This one rises out of the earth. So it's a lesser beast in some ways. And we have this, 
really, I'm not misusing the word to say, this is an awe-inspiring description of this beast. Awe-inspiring, fear-inducing, impossible to ignore description of the second beast in verses 11 through 13. So powerful, by the way, is this beast that when it speaks, verse 14, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them, to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now this, this you know, so, sometimes Christians are like, oh, I don't know if I'll be wise enough or spiritual enough to discern when the beast comes and if I know it's the beast and how am I going to know, it's, you know if I didn't take the mark and all of this. And there, some Christians are so, so insecure about all of this and it's so easy to know when the beast comes, as a Christian, you're just automatically going to know because God said, have no carved images before me. No idols. No idols at all. Look what happens here. The beast deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them, make an image of the beast. You know, the one that died and then came back to life. Make an image of that one, set it up and worship that. Christians should be like, uh-uh, no way. That's a telltale sign that this is not God. This isn't Christ. And I'm not going anywhere near that. Notwithstanding the fact that the Catholic Church has all kinds of images in its in its buildings, that's not the kind of worship that a genuine Christian engages in. It's right here. So this beast is creating this false narrative and raising up worship and belief so that they might place their hope in that and not in God. Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And so now we have the beast being given voice, this image being given voice to proclaim a very specific message. Anyone that's not willing to bow down to this beast right here, kill them death sentence, wipe them out. So this is, this is on any Christians that are alive at the time. A death sentence proclaimed. Believers physically now vulnerable to the power of the beast. And unbelievers are so taken with this beast that they, without respect to any status, notice verse 16, it's small and great, it's rich and poor, it's free and slave, everybody, they get marked on the right hand, or on the forehead. Now, this is another parody because believers in Revelation 7 have already been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We already have. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not a visible mark, obviously, but you're already marked by God. That's your identity, and it provides you, we'll see in a little bit, it provides you with your security as a Christian. So again, The the dragon is just imitating what God has already done. I'm going to put a mark on my guys. He's got a mark on his guys. I'm going to put a mark on my guys. So they all come. They get the mark. This mark, by the way, then restricts what they can and cannot do. Verse 17, there are economic impacts 
And again, if you remember back to what we looked at in the seven letters in chapters two and three, there were economic impacts for believers that were happening in very real time in the first century. When they first read this book, they went, aha, I know, I know, we're going through that already. People were losing businesses, their businesses losing customers because they were followers of Christ, couldn't, couldn't sell in the markets. And so they would, they would understand exactly what's going on here. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Verse 18, he says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For, the, for it's the number of a man, it's the number of a very specific person, and his number is 666. Now, I'm going to say a couple of things here. One thing I'm going to say is that if you play with numbers long enough, I could probably make any one of your names the Antichrist name too. So like, if you, like the math on this is is just very interesting. But there was a thing that they did in the first century where they would take letters, the letters of the alphabet, and add numerical values to them, and sometimes different uh, sets of numerical values, and then they would come up with the numerical value of a person's name. And when the first century readers, again, were, were reading Revelation for the first time, the way that John is saying this here, he kind of is indicating, hey, you know exactly who I'm talking, to, uh, talking about. And we're reading it going like, I'm not so sure who he's talking about. But the first century readers apparently were able to see this 666 code and go, well, I don't know who exactly they're talking about. And again, the vast majority of commentators will say, not definitively, but they will say most of the evidence, not all of the evidence, but most of the evidence would point to Nero. And certainly Nero had the spirit of Antichrist and would be a great prototype for any future Antichrist that would come. And so that's what would have been in, in, in their own mind. But, but, but no one has yet, and I love this, this is what uh, uh, George uh, Eldon Ladd said. He says, no one has yet solved the meaning of the number, um, but, um, but the number will be made plain at the right time. When we need to know, God's going to tell us. But until that time, we don't need to know so God hasn't told us. And we don't need to worry at all that we're going to be receiving the mark because if we have the mark of Christ on us, then we're not going to give in to the evil one. We're not going to take this mark. And as a Christian cannot take this mark by accident. It didn't come in the vaccine. I'll just wait here to see if anybody leaves. But the reality is anybody who believed that has already left, so... Lots of speculation around all of this and none of it helpful. The bottom line is this, unbelievers stake their hope in the beast and mark themselves in this way, taking on his name to identify with it. And, and that's, not, that's not just a future thing. Again, we want to be so careful as we look at the book of Revelation that we're not saying, hey, you know what, this was all history and it happened back here and that's how they read it or it's all future, or some combination of those two things, and we're just awaiting for it all to roll out. It's happening now. The spirit of Antichrist is very much alive in our world today, and every person alive today, Christian and non-Christian of all kinds, have staked their hope in something. They've already taken the mark on themselves. And if their hope is in something other than Jesus Christ. It's in vain. They have a misplaced hope. Rather than, let's keep moving here, rather than hearing the call, and there's a call that's put out now to believers. Look to the last part of, 
of verse 10 and, and underline this. Here is a call, God says. Here is a call. This is God himself putting the call on our lives as Christians to properly align our worship, our belief, and our hope. He says this is a call to endurance. A call to endurance. Verse 10, notice, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Now, th that word endurance, if you studied the Bible in certain passages of the Bible, you've looked at perseverance, then you know that this word is, is the Greek word hupomene. Hupomene means to remain under something. It means to, to bear up in the midst of the hard times that we go through. That's what endurance is. I'm bearing up. I'm, I'm remaining under the thing that God has me in. I'm not seeking to get out from under it. So this is a call, Christian. Everything you're reading in Revelation is a call for you to endure. And it's a call of the saints. Now, just to clarify, because there's lots of confusion about this, but if you're a genuine believer, you're a saint. The Vatican does not decide who saints are. God decides who saints are. The Catholics are taking some hits today, aren't they? So many hits. God decides who a saint is. A saint, in fact, is anyone who has been declared righteous or made holy, set apart for God. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. He gave his life as an atonement or as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. His life for ours, taking our sins upon himself. And by doing so, he's been able to forgive our sins and then to declare us as righteous because that's the only way you get into heaven. If you're not like 100% holy, 100% righteous, you don't get in. You don't get in. So, so none of us can bring any of our own righteousness to the table because it's not nearly enough. We need the righteousness of Christ, what's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. He puts his righteousness on us so that when we stand before God, we walk right in. Because all of our sin has been taken care of and we stand before God as a saint. Declared so by God. So Christian, Christian equals saint. And as a saint, listen now, it's crazy time. As a saint, you will endure. As a, I can say it with that, that amount of confidence, I can say it for you as much as I can say it for me. As a saint, I will endure. I will. As a saint, you will endure. And if you don't endure, you are never a saint. Now you're thinking right now, I need some support for that, Todd. So I have some right here in my notes. Jesus said this, Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And if you don't endure to the end, you're never saved. The way, in fact, that you know you're saved, the way you categorically know you're saved is that you're standing there at the end. The way that I know you're saved is when I look to my left and to my right when we get there and I say, oh, you too, and you too. And the way that you know that I am is you're there and see me. We endured to the end. And that's the assurance that God has given to us now. We made it through every trial that we faced. We made it through every temptation that came our way. We, 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 we pressed through every setback. We remained under all the persecution. And some of us even endured martyrdom. 
enduring it all for Christ. Now, no one is saying by this that you endured perfectly. No one endures perfectly, in fact. It's not even possible to do that. No one is saying, no one is saying that when we're running this race, that's an illustration used in the New Testament, we'll see in verse in a moment, that when you're running the race, the way that you're getting to the end is you're like full stride, breaking the tape. No one's doing that. It's not a sprint. Christian life isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. It's an endurance race. And so some of us, to be honest, some of us are going to crawl across the finish line. Some of us are going to stumble multiple times. We're going to be battered and bruised and broken, but we're all going to cross the finish line. We're all going to finish. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to make it. We're not accomplishing this act of endurance in our strength anyway. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which speaks to this, says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Man, I love the New American Standard so much better here. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that leads us into the next part of this. This isn't just a call for the endurance of the saints, but this is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And so we look at faith. Faith, this definition, we've been using this definition for 21 years here. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing God promises a good result. Our faith is not grounded in subjective feelings, but in objective truth. It is unwavering because it is unchanging. The faith of the saints is, at the, at the outset, it's a, it's a set of doctrines. It's, it's a set of beliefs that we have necessary for us to believe about God, that the Lord himself has given to us in his word, that then motivate us to believe and to live faithful lives. And so it is a faith that we believe that results in faithfulness in how we live. So we hear and respond to the call to both endurance and faith, and then finally this hope, hope in Christ. And I hope you have a, do you have a little bit left in your tank to listen here for just a couple of minutes because I just believe this is the best part of the entire message. We saw in verse 8 that all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, but I said there's an exception to that. These ones were so taken in by the promise of false hope, but actually it wasn't all. It was limited, verse 8 goes on to say, it was limited to everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There's so much in that verse. I feel like you could have a whole sermon just on that sentence. But before creation, names were written into this book of life, those who would be saved. If your name is in the book, you will endure. You will have faith. You will have hope. You will believe the right things. It's guaranteed. And I have such confidence in that statement because, again, it's not based on anything that I'm going to do. The fact that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life 
is based entirely on what he's done, what the Lamb of God has done. Not in what I have done. 100% this is the result of the Lamb being slain. What we say um, to this is solus Christus, Christ alone for my salvation. Two things happen here before the foundation of the world, before the creation event itself. Two critical things happen. One is that the lamb was slain, his blood was shed. And secondly, this book then was able to be written in with all of the names of those for whom the blood had been applied. My hope is not in myself. My hope is not in anything the world offers. My only hope is in Christ. And if you are a believer, you also have this mark on you, this mark of Christ, not, verse 16, the mark of the beast, not His name, but the name of Christ, sealed as the servants of God. Again, this is our identity. This is our security. And so those other gods, the, the possessions, the pleasure, the power, all the, all the good things that I could possibly even have in my life, the privileges that I've been given, the influence, the relationships, all the earthly possessions and pleasures, those things could all be taken from me. And still I would be secure in Christ. My health could be taken from me and still I will be secure in Christ. My life could be taken from me and still I would be secure in Christ. The whole world might descend into chaos and collapse around us. Economies and governments could fall into anarchy. And still my future will be secure because our hope is in Christ and it's not in any of these things. All I need is Jesus. Now, If anyone has, a, has an ear, verse 9 says, repeating this phrase we saw earlier in the book, if anyone has an ear, if you're listening at all, hear this. If anyone is to be taken captive and we come back to this principal theme in verse 10, this theme of sovereignty. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If you're a Christian and God has ordained for you that you should be persecuted and martyred, that you should suffer for the name of Christ, then that's the way it's going to go because God is sovereign. Receive it, Christian, as what he has ordained for you. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, he must be slain. If you're an unbeliever and you're under the judgment of God, then that's the way it's going to go. Because God, not the beast, not the dragon, not the false prophet, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is sovereign over all of this. God says this will happen, and so it'll happen. He's on the throne. So ask yourself right now the very personal question about the throne of your heart. Who's sitting there? Who's calling the shots in your life? If it's not Christ, 
and climb down off that throne and let him take his seat. One commentator uh, by the name of M.V. MV, uh, Lee said that these two chapters, 13 and 14, are critical pivot, pivot point for the whole book. And that it is right here in this book, in this very passage that we've looked at, that the moment of decision has come. And so what will your decision be? Who will be on the throne of your heart? Let me pray. Father, uh, we again are so grateful for your word. And uh, Father, I would pray first of all for those who do have Christ on the throne of their heart. Father, that we would not be enamored by the things of this world, not drawn away uh, to worship uh, other things that are lesser gods, lesser small g gods. But Father, that we would have inside of us an enduring spirit. And we would indeed fix our eyes on Jesus and live our lives entirely for you. Especially as the days grow more evil. And Father, I pray for those who have self on the throne. Really, Father, we've already said it. The beast is there. We're his servants. So God, I, I pray for those who are in that situation that God today this would be their moment of decision. They would make a determination right now to get off the throne, to push the beast off the throne, and to put Christ there. They would find their sins forgiven. They would find their hope secure. So thank you, God, for hearing this prayer, for working here and among these people. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.